Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson, and today I am joined by co-host Terry Robinson. We are going to bring you another episode of Tomes of Magic. We are going to look at Sorcerer Revised Edition. This is for the revised edition of Mage the Ascension. Before we get into that, I just wanted to open it up for any announcements we might have for you. Terry, what do you got for us? So I finally figured out how to get the special edition 20th anniversary mage dice that were produced for the European Kickstarters. And all it required was me having a back and forth in Spanish with a game distributor. And they're like, yeah, the dice are this much money, but it's going to be like 40 euro shipping. And I'm like, oh, wow, what else can I get for the same amount of shipping? And we we headed back and forth and started adding things. So long story short, I'm getting $1,200 in Spanish language Mage the Ascension supplements and paraphernalia because I didn't want to, to overpay on shipping. And maybe this is why I have difficulty paying my mortgage in certain months. But I'm very excited <laughs> to get those dice in addition to the uh, the the core rulebook entirely in Spanish for Mao La Ascension. And also, there was a leatherette special edition of How Do You Do That released in Spanish, which is Como Haces Eso? And I just thought that was a, a lovely title. So I look forward to finding a way to make the rules of mage more impenetrable, and that is to read them in a foreign language. That's that's a good way to do that. I have never studied Spanish, and so that... You got me convinced. Oh, it's weird. Like the cross-section of books that I can find in Spanish, there's like the shotgun blast of them that was available in Revised. And and you get these neat little translation things, like the Hollowers literally translates to the Empties, which I think is kind of interesting, which makes it sound like a used shaving cream can or something like that. Um, again, I don't have the cultural context. I'm just trying. I got the core rulebook for M20 in Spanish, and it was like, Yo soy majo. I'm like, I am a mage. Okay, 100% so far, Terry, you got this. So needless to say, my studying for my next exam is going great as I track down Spanish mage supplements around the world. Um, (laughs) Also, a special thanks to Discord user Goth for uh, buying a bunch of stuff with our affiliate code. We really appreciate the support. I probably said their name wrong, but I really like their icon, which shows a little smiley face hugging the M20 core rulebook. And every time I say it, it makes me smile. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot to, to that fan. Anyone who uses those affiliate codes really does help out the podcast to keep doing what we do. Well, we turn now to Sorcerer Revised, and uh, this is the book on hedge magic or path magic. This is linear magic that any person in the world of darkness can learn. You don't need to be an awakened mage or touched by fey or related to were creatures or anything like that. Any sort of person who is very dedicated and perhaps a bit odd can throw their life into studying path magic and learn it and use it. And this book uh, clocks in at 128 pages. It came out towards the end of the year 2000. There are three authors and two contributors. I just think of it as as five authors. And Jess Heinig himself uh, was one of the people contributing to this. And uh, we have a book uh, on sorcerers for World of Darkness, which is technically the label they give for a supplement that can be used for any of the five big World of Darkness games. However, uh, to this day, a lot of mage fans think of 
World of Darkness Sorcerer as a supplement for Mage Second Edition. And so it was nice to see this Sorcerer revised because it takes the material and updates it to the revised edition rule set. The rules are a bit different in terms of damage and, and several other things. And so it was really nice to have that resource uh, made available to the new rule set. Now, because we're going to be talking about secret societies, people who study forgotten lore and make some questionable life choices, I just wanted to say I'm very uh, thankful that uh, Terry Robinson is co-host for this episode because I've been noticing some of these tendencies myself, Terry. I mean, I... You know, I don't want to poke into your personal life. Well, I do, but but I don't technically want to poke into your personal life. And I'm just going to say that you have been mentioning here and there in our communications that you're studying some very, very thick books because you want to advance in this society you've joined that you've never named. I'm, I'm just going to pull this right out of the open. Terry, are you a sorcerer? I am the opposite of a sorcerer. One of the things listed here is that in several cases, they indicate that sorcerers have a certain addiction that once you do it, you can't stop. And that may be the opposite of my relationship with studying where I'm like, Hmm, I could spend more time doing impenetrable insurance math, or I could alphabetize my spice rack again. So uh, based on that criterion, I believe I fail. Although I am, uh, let's say pursuing one or two dots in either precognition or fortune. But ultimately my goal is to increase the number of dots of resources I have. And at my current rate, I should have some success with that sometime in the 2030s. But thank you for asking. (laughs) Well, uh, starting into this book, I really wanted to just state up front that there can be some confusion between terms in this book. Uh, for example, ritual has been a game term uh, for whenever a, a mage, a mage who uses sphere magic, takes more than one turn to do an effect. And so they're basically doing multiple rolls and then adding up the results so that they can have a much stronger effect, but they take a lot more time to do it. In this book, uh, ritual is a game term for sorcerers, and that is something that is uh, described ahead of time. It is usually in the rule book or the storyteller has, has typed it up and approved it. It has its own formalized name. It has a specific mention of uh, foci that a sorcerer would use, and it has a very specific predetermined effect. And so I just wanted to make it clear that ritual is a game term times two. Also, we mentioned in our episode on World of Darkness Sorcerer that it's always been a little bit fuzzy which term you use when you're talking about a, a hedge wizard. Hedge wizard sounds a bit awkward and it's not terribly complimentary, but it is very, very clear when you say it to other mage fans what you're talking about. Uh, in these books, they often use the terms magician or sorcerer to refer to a hedge wizard, but it does state in other mage books that terms like sorcerer, witch, magician can also be a term to sphere using full class mages. So yeah, in this book, we see the word sorcerer again and again, and it's just clear to the reader by now that, okay, when we say sorcerer in this book, we're talking about the linear path magic um, hedge wizard type of characters that we're detailing in this book. But now that we've got the terms out of the way, I think it's time to open it up for a walkthrough of this book. And I think Terry can help us out there. When I think hedge wizard, I think someone who is particularly skilled at using garden shears. And that's that's the only thought I ever have when I see hedge wizard. And linear mage always sounds like the lamest of insults, like mm, linear mage. This book starts with a bang. And by that, I mean a prelude. And this continues revised trends of short, punchy fiction to start off books. It is a family who may lose the farm because they haven't gotten rain. So their neighbors 
use magic to bring rain. It's really straightforward in that regard, and I liked it. Did you have any thoughts on the prelude, Adam? It fit, and it was appropriate. The only complaint I have is it makes sorcerers look kind of dull. <laughs> it's like they all gather around the kitchen table and, and chew the fat, and then every once in a while they, they make it rain. And, and other than that, they're, they're very ordinary, dull people that you might miss. And it's like, I wanted exciting sorcerers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we, we will get that soon enough. But yeah, I kind of enjoyed like how banal it was in that regard but yeah it was kind of at minimum soft-spoken and then the uh the book starts we have an introduction which continues the revised trend of being one page long we get our first full page spread from ron spencer on page 10 and normally i don't comment too much about the art in books but one the person on page 10 is a spitting image for Natasha McElhenney, the Hollywood actress. And every time I look at that, I'm like, I remember you from Solaris. The other thing that is absolutely infuriating about this illustration on page 10 is it was done in ballpoint pen. I can barely create a stick figure that resembles a human being, and Ron Spencer is able to do something with a half-depleted golf pencil on a cocktail napkin that should be hung in like an art museum. One of the, the, the few useful things that does come early on in the book is the statement that sorcerers are those who have followed the past that have already been opened by the awakened. And the book works very hard to not quite put sorcerers on equal footing, but maybe to bridge the gap that existed in previous editions between sorcerers who were piddling around the edges and mages who were doing real magic. Uh, it, it also makes mention that sorcerers probably outnumber true mages by a fair amount. I think as of Fallen Tower, Las Vegas, it comes out to be four or five to one. And in the convention books, the number of extraordinary citizens per enlightened agent may be uh, 20 to one. So in a few places, it kind of mentions there are a lot of sorcerers running around. That is something to keep in mind. Uh, chapter one is called The Twilight World and is in the form of a long letter from a 70-year-old woman who is just kind of explaining what sorcery is. Uh, it starts out with saying uh, who we are, and it fundamentally says that sorcerers and people who use that kind of ability are humans that have peeked into another world. And this felt very Chronicles of Darkness to me, because the rest of the world of darkness is very the supernatural world, and there's the mundane world, and really they, they don't overlap too much. Where Chronicles of Darkness is one of those things where you could turn down the wrong street and suddenly be face-to-face -face with the god machine or something like that. It mentions that sorcery is addictive, which leads sorcerers to do weird things like selling their souls. And it suggests that it's not entirely a power thing, and it walks through a bunch of different reasons why someone may become a sorcerer. One may be due to friends or family ties, that it's a community activity, in the same way that some people go to church, some people are part of a, a sorcerer's society, uh, that they like the sense of togetherness, or that the goal of the sorcerer's organization matches their own goals. And it goes through a few examples of sorcery groups that this letter writer uh, has encountered. One looked like a magical debate club, another one was a band, another one was, a, was an earth cult. And one of the things that was interesting that took me a little bit to understand is the author of this note also makes mention to kind of a sense of independence that she as a sorcerer has in so much as uh, it makes statements about doing this by themselves and not getting it from some other spirit 
And at first I'm like, are you just talking about people who like sell their souls or something like that? And I think this was a reference to the Avatar that we talked about in previous books, how the Avatar in Revised becomes a little bit more strange and a little bit more distant and a little bit more other from the mage. And the impression I got from this was that sorcerers pride themselves because they do it entirely themselves. They don't have this weird other thing that has granted them their power. It makes mention that research is required that you need to find teachers, that it's very hard to figure out any of this stuff on yourself, and that the results of sorcery versus true magic are very reliable. That claim is brought up before, but that has always bothered me. If it's very reliable, then why are you rolling for it? And then we head on to chapter two. I did like how in chapter one, it mentions how sorcerers can look at sphere mages and say, yeah, I'm not sure I want that. Because for me, in World of Darkness Sorcerer, the first book on sorcerer in second edition, sorcerers basically didn't know about sphere mages. They just didn't know they were there. So it wasn't an issue. Now they work side by side so much. And so I, I was thinking, well, wouldn't the linear mages look at the sphere mages and say, I wish I had that. But uh, here it gives me this good sense of the sorcerers look at the sphere mages and they say, well, look, you know, paradox does terrible things to these people. And, and I'm glad I'm not operating on that level because I don't have that fear. And then they also say, these people are guided by these very mysterious spirits, you know, the avatars. And I'm just not sure I'm down with that. I don't know where this thing is coming from. I don't know if I feel like trusting my whole life and destiny to some mysterious spirit that doesn't even say much or doesn't visit very often. And so I liked that sense of sorcerers looking at sphere mages and saying, yeah, that that looks pretty scary. I don't think I want that. I think I'm good where I am. Chapter two is entitled Sorcerer Societies and tries to explain what sorcerer groups there are out there, but also does this kind of hidden redefinition of what a tradition is, which I thought was was kind of interesting. It starts out with an opening, which is a letter from a hermetic explaining to other hermetics what linear magic is and trying to explain how it works. And the key takeaways from this are that every effect is a combination of what he refers to as an element plus a principle, that there is a specific domain and a specific way that you can act on that domain. And it is very narrow. There is very little benefit from previous learning and they stick to a very specific line, which is the sorcery that has been established before. But this is very much a case that in the previous section, it is a sorcerer talking about the awakened. Here we now have an awakened person talking about sorcerers and kind of saying, don't dismiss them. They're terribly uh, handy. They they are capable of great things if, if very narrow that it has the repetitive success that doesn't exist before. And then we get a little aside that says, awakened or not, it's still magic. And again, one of the things that Revised and Mage does is basically says every supernatural power in some way we're going to call magic. It introduces the term affinitive magic as a term for dynamic or, or true magic, which thank goodness is not a term that sticks around because when I think affinitive magic, I just think of nothing in particular. It's not really a useful term to me. And then we get a list of metaphysical societies and it starts off with the traditions and tries to explain how each tradition embraces sorcerers. But to me, the hidden little gem is in a section called Under My Umbrella, where it basically says that traditions are a social fiction, that they are a whole bunch of disparate ideas that have been brought together under a single roof and that it is a bizarre and ultimately false stereotype to try and say that all magic practitioners within a given tradition agree on 
a lot. The technocracy is the closest that we get to that kind of uniformity because their goal is that kind of uniformity. And even the Nefandi aren't on the, the same page as other Nefandi. I appreciated this, but it, to me, is a very weird aside to include in a book on sorcery. And then it goes through what the relationship is between each tradition and its sorceress members. And as Adam mentioned before, that in in uh, second edition, the Awakened didn't interfere with the sorcerers and vice versa. But here it specifically says, this is what the initiation, uh, the organization and style, and what associated paths make the most sense for each of the traditions or each of the groups. And most of them are pretty straightforward. The basic training that you get as a member of the Akashiyana, as a sorcerer or as a mage are going to be largely the same. It's going to have rigorous self-discipline. The master-student relationship is very important. Specifically, it talks about how the celestial chorus is like, hey, <laughs> what is religion but a way of getting a whole bunch of people to do the same thing at the same time based on the same belief? So suggests that there's a very strong sorcerer's tradition there. Cult of Ecstasy, uh, not so much. Sometimes people have a hard time differentiating between magic and just the effect of drugs. Makes particular mention that the Order of Hermes tends to view their sorcerers as kind of failures, which I thought was kind of interesting, and mentions that it's hard to find good materials, that if it turns out that you don't awaken, it's hard to get tutelage and instruction. Sons of Aether, generally people are, are working hard under a mentor, and that sorcerers are responsible for taking a big idea and finding out all the implications of it, which I thought was an interesting mix. The Verbanet suggested that it's based kind of on what subgroup that you have and the virtual adepts they brought up on the digital web no one knows that you're a sorcerer finally when it goes through the existing factions in the ascension war it also brings up the idea of extraordinary citizens which is suggested as a a term for a technocratic sorcerer and throughout the rest of the book technomantic variants of the various paths are also presented if you were to look at what a technocratic sorcerer does and what a technocrat does there's very little space between the two and that space is dropping over time and it kind of gives two answers as to why one is the idea that hey that's the goal to bridge the gap between what the awakened can do and what the unawakened can do but also the fact that the technocracy is having difficulty keeping up their pace of innovation which is mentioned as this idea in revise that reality is just kind of tired and that hyper technology isn't quite advancing so that theme is is recapitulated and with that it goes into other sorceress groups a bunch of which are new and when i think groups i think adam there were a few that were repeated from the previous book world of darkness sorcerer and so i'm going to focus on the uh, the newer ones here uh, we have the children of osiris the children of Osiris was a bloodline in Vampire the Masquerade. A bloodline is a group of vampires that is smaller and less powerful than a clan of vampires. Uh, these vampires claim descent from Osiris, who they claim was a powerful vampire in ancient Egypt. Sorcerers who were not vampires were a part of this group that retains mystic knowledge and rituals from past eras of Egypt. The vampires of this group are no more, but the sorcerers remain. They worship Osiris and seek the power of resurrection. Recently, members of this group have disappeared. It is whispered by some they have relocated to the Middle East. Yes, this group ties in with Mummy, the Resurrection for World of Darkness. The Cult of Isis, a group that began with Isis, wife of Osiris in ancient Egypt. Horus, leaders of the mummies, directed it after Isis' death, but later it spread across the Western world and split into many societies that retained similarities such as sensuality in their rituals along with ancient Egyptian elements. Some groups are connected to or even have members in the Order of Hermes, Verbena, and Cult of Ecstasy. The Cult of Mercury, 
The group was introduced in Dead Magic as a group that existed in ancient Greece and Rome. It was implied they died out, but mages traveled to the Mediterranean to unearth their secrets. It seems the society isn't dead, though. They require large numbers of participants for their rituals and can only perform their magic through these rituals. The surviving cult is small and having a hard time these days. Maison Liban. This society began as a group of refugees escaping House Tremere when it was still a part of the Order of Hermes. The name could be translated as the House of Survivors or the house that got the hell out of Dodge. Their traditional home is northern France. They specialize in protection and anti-scrying magic and have retained many hermetic trappings. The elders leading clan Tremere of vampires may know more about these sorcerers. Nebu Afef, the Order of the Golden Fly. In the time of Moses, not long after the ancient Jews left Egypt, resentment still smoldered against them. A group of sorcerers created a special ritual to attract the angel of death once again so they could bind it to their service. Unfortunately, they didn't know that the angel of death had left God's service and had its own agenda. Letting the magicians believe it was their slave, it taught them only what it wanted them to know. The golden fly in their name comes from a mark of distinction for soldiers in ancient Egypt. At the society's founding, many of the members were soldiers, and this tradition continues today. Most members are soldiers, police officers, and similar professions with strong bodies and tactical minds. The society left Egypt long ago, and when a mysterious attack drove them out of Europe during World War II, they disappeared. Reports mention them in the U.S. and the Middle East. The angel of death is still attached to the society today. Its influence is still malevolent. The Silver Portal. This was a minor group in World of Darkness Sorcerer. Here the description is expanded. It is offered to players with special rules to vary the character's path magic based on their last chaotic dream experience. The Star Council. This society began as a group of UFO investigators who broke into a restricted hangar to discover some very strange devices. Since then, they've merged with the remains of the Thalhun, a group we covered in our episode on World of Darkness Sorcerer, and learned to hide their meetings from the U.S. government. They continue to seek the truth behind what they believe are aliens. Strange occurrences dog them. If you like the X-Files television show, this group looks awfully familiar. I thought it was interesting that they're like, they also listed the defunct groups, like the ones that merged, like the Balamob are now associated with the Dream Speakers, or the Uzoma have joined the Nagoma, or the the Priests of the Pythian Order. They're like, yeah, they're still there, but there's like three, so who cares? Or the, the Nephite Priesthood, like something crazy happened on January 4th, 2000, and there's one survivor. And this, this was just a big section of like, oh yes, give me more. Uh, the one that threw me off was the Order of the Golden Fly, because they're like the Asatru Futhark. They were the biker Nazi sorcerers, and they're gone. But that leaves a wildly anti-Semitic hole in our lineup, so we're going to add the Nebu FF to the listing. And I'm like, did we really? Did we really need to do that? Did we? Yeah, I, I, I saw. I, I thought the same thing. It's like then I read after the Nebu FF. It's like the Satru Futhark are gone. It's like, oh, the villain group's out, so we got a replacement villain group. So like, well, okay, I, I guess yeah. we could do that. Yeah. I really appreciated that like meta plot happened that like the world has changed between world of darkness, sorcerer and uh, sorcerer revised maybe too much, but I, I thought that was, that was kind of neat. 
Adam made mention to uh, the Children of Osiris, which is a bloodline in vampire, which basically just means they don't have an antediluvian, so they are founded by someone who is fourth generation or higher. And then uh, they make mention of the Seven Thunders, which was a very strongly uh, Christian religious group who considered themselves prophets who encounter what they refer to as the messengers, which is a reference to Hunter the Reckoning. And they're like, maybe we're not the messengers, which is totally unrealistic because every time I've met someone who thinks that they were literally God's gift to anything, if they encountered something else that made them disagree with that, they just double downed on it. And I thought those little threads to other bits in the world of darkness were were interesting without being complicating. Because in a lot of cases, it's it would usually be like, oh yeah, these are associated with werewolves. For more information, read the guide to the worm. And you're like, oh, I don't want to have to read another book. So I thought that was super cool. Did you, did you have a favorite? Well, you know, I, I do. Um, and it's going to be the Silver Portal. I, I just think they're so interesting. And it, it's not even as, as like a player character in that group. It's just as a storyteller, I look at that group and it's like, these guys are just interesting. It's like whether they're powerful or really weak, either way, I, I just want to pull these into a story somewhere. But uh, looking over this chapter, I was so happy to see a mention uh, in passing to uh, Maya and the Dream Lords. The, the Maya were supposed to be these dream realms in the Umbra that were big and powerful and scary. And they weren't really in the High Umbra or the Middle Umbra. They were kind of their own place. But this was very early in the history of, of the Mage game. And by the time we get to Second Edition or Vice Edition, there's very few mentions to them. I noted that they had shorter write-ups for the sorcerer groups in here. And in this book, the descriptions were shorter, and so there's, there's less of that. Also, there are two, you could say three groups that tie in with Mummy the Resurrection. So they, they really wanted to let you know that there's a lot going on in connection with ancient Egypt in the World of Darkness in 2000. Although it is enjoyable to come across metaplots sometimes. I'm sorry, I cannot believe that those guys in the Order of Aeon Rites had a throwdown with the Satru Futhark and kicked their butts and sent them home. I, I, I can't believe that. It's like, no, I think if a Satru Futhark met the Aeon Rites guys, they would like fold them up and stick them in a shopping bag and send them to their mommies. <laughs> I can't see this one. <laughs> Shove them into a locker or something like that. Yeah, they stick them into their locker in school and lock the door and walk away laughing. It's like, yeah, the one thing the Aeon, uh, the Order of the Aeon Rite seems to have is it seems to be larger. It seems to be one of the larger sorceress societies. So maybe some sort of like sorceress, like home alone scenario occurred where the Asatru Futhark was like, oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to kick these guys asses and we're going to give them all swirlies or something like that. And they got, they found out about it ahead of time and they got to prepare like really complicated Enochian traps and so on. And you get that scene where like someone falls into a pit and two nerds get to like high five each other or something like that. That's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping happened. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that's the only possible explanation that the Asatru Futhark came to the Aeon Rites home turf and that there were more of them there. It's like, now you, you're starting to convince me. But other than that, I, I can't see it. Uh, chapter three is the character creation chapter. And it is a pretty straightforward character creation chapter. It introduces a bunch of new abilities like lucid dreaming and hypnosis and parapsychology and cole and mana, which they list the wrong origin for. The word mana is listed there as Polynesian. It's not Latin. Um, anyway, uh, status is is introduced. We get the, the number of dots that you have. Instead of 753, it's uh, 643 and so on. But you still get five uh, points of willpower. Uh, and, and this is just what you think it was. It gives you a whole bunch of merits and flaws that are appropriate specifically for sorcerers. 
the one criticism I have of it is by putting character creation in front of all of the other things, we kind of get this weird out of order explanation of stuff where it's like, this is how you choose Numina. We haven't given you any information on what the Numina are yet. Here's how you pick it. Uh, and it kind of breaks everything down into three classes, a mythic Numina, a technocratic Numina, and a psychic Numina. And this is just kind of the, the worldview that is used for each, with the exception that psychic Numina have their own power list versus technocratic and mythic Numina, which kind of draw from the uh, same set of sorceress paths. It gives some information on the, the benefits and, and flaws of each, about whether or not you can overcome your need for a focus, or whether it just comes from inside of you and how you view the cosmos. It has an aside on sorcerers not getting paradox unless you want them to, as well as picking things like resonance traits that even though they don't make a retail rolls, that they have this uh, this bit of resonance to them that may influence what they do. I tend to hate the introduction of new traits, and I think systematically this causes issues because like the technocratic variance in a lot of cases, as we'll talk about later, you generally wind up roll like intelligence plus science, and science is on the core character sheet, where if you have to roll uh, wits plus lucid dreaming, you now have this other uh, trait that needs to be on your character sheet that you need to dump points into, and I get flavor-wise why you would do it, but to me it just kind of seemed like a bit of a complication. You have wild talent, which is this uh, one paragraph thing that's like, oh, by the way, here's how you can modify literally everything in this book with a single with a single merit and or flaw, depending on how a character takes it. One of the things this book works to do is to blur the line between uh, sorcerers and uh, sphere using mages. I'll, I'll just say mages. They put some effort into that. Uh, we've got a new background for sorcerers called guide, which is there's there's something that you know advises you. And if it's taking the form of an animal, it's a lot like the familiar background for mages. And if it takes the form of a spirit, it's a lot like the avatar background for mages. When you were talking about introducing new systems, I would bring up mana. Mana is a new system. It's a new game term for this. It's like watered down quintessence for sorcerers only. And so it's like, well, okay, I guess I can kind of see that, but I'm not used to breaking down one quintessence point into fractions. And so as a storyteller, I'm kind of wondering how I approach that. And this book doesn't really give me a firm understanding of the relationship between mana and quintessence. It's like, how do you deal with, how do they bounce off of each other? How do they react to each other? I, I don't really know. In fact, as I was reading through chapter four of the Numina, there's one point where it basically talks about how mana and quintessence are the same thing, but then you keep reading. It's like, well, well, no, mana really is watered down lesser quintessence. Even though mana is like a, a watered down quintessence for sorcerers, they have three merits in this chapter that let a sorcerer use the mana more effectively to help with skill rolls and and so i thought that that was that was nice it was it was a thoughtful approach to including this new system blood magic is listed as a five point merit which makes it expensive <laughs> yep. but then you read through the description it's like no that was a flaw because it makes your life awful you basically have to cut yourself and bleed all over the place to do your magic and so it's like that was the flaw that got written up as a merit there is this metaphor of struggling awake sorcerers their avatar is not really asleep like sleepers it's not really awake like sphere mages it's struggling awake it's like well okay i guess i can sort of get that but the metaphor gets quite complicated for me pretty quickly as i think of a storyteller and i i think i would as a storyteller just not use that phrase because it's very hard for me to understand what to 
do with it. And I could not make heads or tails of the system for it. Where <laughs> I think I read it three times where it's like, oh, if you're going to use this Awakening Act, you need to roll dice that's greater than your path. But if you have two more successes than your avatar rating and it's a Thursday, you get twice as many. But you act as if you're quiet and you don't get any paradox unless you also have this other merit. And you're like, you put your heart into this system? I'm glad. And it's like, at the end of it, I use clairvoyance, but I got three points of paradox and also... <laughs> my left hand yeah is i just blue. want to say thank you terry for saying that i, I don't want to complain too much but <laughs> and i'm when i was guy. reading chapter three <laughs> and i read through that it's like my head was spinning i was like uh i think i need to sit down and, and just uh, have a few deep breaths here because oh my goodness what thanks for mentioning that because that was oh my gosh i was like what do i do with this also there are several mentions in this chapter and, and later chapters of how in second edition there was an artificial difference between sorcerers and mages and, yeah, I'm sorry, but look, all game rules are artificial. All, all <laughs> systems for role-playing games are artificial. So, I mean, it's like they're complaining that it's so artificial. It's like, well, maybe, but you're replacing it with something that could also be called artificial. So, I, I don't know. Lots of new systems to play with, but you might trip over some of them. It has a lot of heart, is the term I'll use. If you're if you're a systems fan and you are you like that buffet style, this book just screams out to you. The, the mana thing was kind of... Interesting, the idea, though, that a sorcerer can go through some sort of meditative ritual to create kind of an energy bank, which allows them to almost generate quintessence. It felt like this other thing, but then later, as you said, we get this path that's like, oh, by the way, you have mana control, which can also disrupt notes, which is an awesome story idea to be like, oh, these sorcerers are kind of messing with it. It's the equivalent of a whole bunch of squirrels building a nest inside of a transformer, which knocks the power out. But... <laughs> but <God>. That <laughs> yeah. works. Yeah. <laughs> but also, it wasn't wasn't quite explained. And revised is the edition where we get explanations for things that we maybe didn't even want in the first place. Chapter 4 is titled paths and rituals i would say this is the systems chapter except for the part where it is followed up immediately by one more system chapter it goes over uh, all of the the sorceress workings and largely covers two classes of things it breaks things down into paths which are composed of dot levels that generate what they refer to as spells which are quick comparatively and rituals which take much more time but also give you the benefit of having other people participate in them and this is a very crunchy first half of the section as i said earlier i'm usually the crunch person but in some cases this is bordering on like gurps in terms of like the sheer number of modifiers that you have and it's it's good they they are thought out for instance here's a rule that i thought was genius normally when you do extended rules roles in mage the storyteller will say okay your research role you get to roll once every six hours of research or once per day at the library and that doesn't always work for instance if you have a character that wants to write a presentation or uh, make a work of art it's often the case of diminishing returns where the longer you work on it uh, your improvement will not be linear it will be much slower and here it says hey if you do a sorceress work as an extended role each additional role doubles the overall casting time so if the first role was after three turns the next role is after another three turns and then after six and then after 12 and I, i think that's a really cool mechanical idea and this chapter is full of those things but as i said it is 
full of those things <laughs> where it's like, uh, yeah, this is how you can change the nature of a botch to match what the path is going to be. And maybe failure should generate um, a botch if you want to moderate uh, power and uh, you can use things to buy successes, but the automatic successes from a willpower roll doesn't apply unless you got at least, again, it's interesting. It's just a lot to, to keep track of. It also introduced the idea of aspects in revised damage and duration are split up so now whenever you do an effect you have a bunch of different places the successes from a a retail role can go in and here it does the same thing the difference is the aspects are different for each of the paths and a path is a way of what you could call a sphere it is a a set of connected spells or rituals that narratively kind of do something similar to each other and sometimes the aspects make sense it could be duration it could be the number of people affected. It could be the intensity of the, the effect. And you need to assign successes to them. There's limits based on what your path rating is, unless you get twice as many successes as what the required number of successes is. And then you can bump it up by one, which allows you to essentially have arch path ratings. And it talks about how to do fast casting and how to create hanging spells. It's really crunchy and it gives you a bunch of interesting options. Sorcerers can unweave or counterspell against other night folk, and it gives recommendations on, hey, maybe use, if someone has this path, they can work against changelings, or they can do this against vampires or something like that. And then it ends with a section on the storyteller prerogative that basically says, ultimately, it's up to them, which we always knew, but it doesn't hurt to necessarily repeat. Followed by a reminder of the whole purpose of sorcery is that you should be able to be someone who can do some cool stuff. Don't screw over your players. They talk about how if you want to use uh, basically anti-magic, like unweaving and, and counter spells against the powers of other denizens of the world of darkness, uh, it says how you can't just take one for all of them. And it, it says that there are four categories of counter spells, but then it does not tell you what the four categories are, and it lists the things you might counter spell against, and there's like six or seven or, or eight of them. And so I was like kind of confused. I went onto our Discord and I, I asked some people, and they gave me two different ways to divide up the four categories and they made sense but then i had a third way of dividing up the four categories and it made sense to me and so it's like yeah th this is quite open to interpretation but a storyteller can make a ruling and, and you can continue from there so it's not a game breaker but a little odd for me the thing that was really blew my mind i gotta say was you know like a year or two back i put out a question to mage fans and i said uh, can sorcerers use quintessence and somebody said in revised edition they can it's like oh okay i'll make a note of that and, and here on page 63 they technically sorcerers technically can use quintessence but really kind of no because what they do is um, if they take quintessence in the form of, of physical tasks and it says particularly potent and it doesn't tell you how much particularly potent is is that 10 points of quintessence like 5 20 I, I don't know but anyways if it's a particularly potent amount of quintessence then a sorcerer can use it if it is lined up with their their paradigm their 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 approach to magic but it is quite wasteful Basically, they're going to burn, I'm going to guess, 10 points of quintessence out of this task, and they get minus one to their difficulty for one effect. So, yes, it does help them, but they waste so much quintessence for such a small benefit that if there is a mage standing next to them, the mage is going to be like, no, 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 it's cool, it's cool. Look, let's just save this for later because let's not use it that way. It, was, it says it's like take a, a relic uh, staff that was a wonder for an archmage and they're going to burn it so that they can get minus one difficulty to one. It'd be like if there's a mage standing there, it's like, no, no, hold on. Yeah. Let's rethink this. Put the lighter down. <laughs> so... <yeah. laughs> 
but, but yeah, those are my thoughts on the, the early part of chapter four. It, it does give you some narrative options where you're like, oh, why are these sorcerers stealing all my awakened stuff? And like, and you're using it for what? But but otherwise it's like, eh. it's like burning money to keep warm <laughs> in terms of efficiency. And then we get the section entitled The Many Paths. And there are what is technically known as many paths. I have 15 and I will literally just quickly define them. Um, alchemy. You're able to make charms, which are one-shot abilities that temporarily provide a benefit that eventually wear off. Conjuration, you can move things. At low levels, this lets you use rituals as it lists like summon shotgun, which I thought was uh, delightfully up-to-date. And at high levels, you can turn a a drawer of silverware into a, a blizzard of death, which I thought was narratively neat. Conveyance is no longer 90% likely to have your magic carpet drop you over the Atlantic Ocean. This is the art of, of moving around, and it's not nearly as failure prone. On the ritual side, it also lets you block teleportation. Divination is exactly what you think it is. And it lists this as being interesting where the roles are not public where you don't know if you get good information or bad information, which I would hate my storyteller for that. And then in a different section, it's like, Oh, by the way, if the role fails, they just get hazy or useless information. I'm like that effectively makes the role public. Then you get enchantment, which generates something more like talismans. These are uh, things that are persistent. The power level of this is pretty weird because a five dot enchantment was a wallet that always had $5 in it that could be used up to four times a day. But the heart seeking stiletto that does strength plus five damage that you can still throw was only three dots. Again, it's flavorful and interesting. Fascination. You can attract people's attention. Fortune cursing and blessing things. Healing, only slightly better than medicine. Healing as a path, I think, is kind of understated and requires you to have one of those chronicles where it's like, oh yeah, you you narrowly escape with your life against the vampire. You're going to be in the hospital for 172 days. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess I get to play my apprentice for the next six months of in-game time. Hellfire, forces, but lame. It is strictly worse than having a gun. Mana manipulation, again, you can disrupt nodes, even though you're not entirely sure what they are. Oneiromancy, this one's a lot of fun. At low levels, you can influence others, people's dreams. At high levels, you can make your dreams manifest, which is pretty nuts. Uh, shadow casting is still pretty lame, but not as lame as it used to be, where uh, you think you're going to have crazy obtenebrate Lasombra powers where you're going to be able to tail people apart in shadows, but no, instead you can make an area dark, and then at higher levels you can make it so dark that people begin to doubt themselves you have shape shifting where you literally change your shape summoning binding and warning it got rid of the idea of there being the four different kinds of summoning binding and warding and kind of rolled them together and again this is a case where revise has a lot of great ideas but maybe dropped it on the editing because it makes mention in here to ephemera as generally dealing with spirits and the rest of the book makes mention to the path of ephemera but only if you read the section on summoning binding and warning and realized that it, ephemera was just a type of that would that make sense also in here, I think one of them calls for an intuition roll, which literally is not a stat in World of Darkness that I know of. And then final weather control, which is nuts for two reasons. One, it lets you just summon hurricanes within an hour or two. Two, you roll manipulation plus willpower. That's a lot of dice. And you can make it as an extended roll, which kind of makes it nuts. Those are the 15 paths. If I were to use this in the game, I would really have to take a long, hard look at these. The uh, There's a lot of really cool ideas and it does a lot of really neat stuff. 
stuff. Alchemy and enchantment specifically, I think are a lot of fun. Oniromancy is really cool, but I would have to spend a lot of time as a storyteller just thinking about how I wanted to balance them. The systems in a lot of cases are kind of clunky. Like almost every technological variant of a path is something plus science, as opposed to if you pick another thing, it might be like uh, manipulation plus lucid dreaming or charisma plus cult or something like that. If you're a technocratic sorcerer, you get a lot of bang for having a lot of dots in science. I don't know if that was the intent, though, if they wanted to make it really potent in that regard or not, or if that was just a, a failure of creativity. It, it cleaned up a bunch of stuff from World of Darkness Sorcerer that didn't quite make a lot of sense to me. It cleaned up a lot of stuff, but also introduced some new messy powers. The aspects didn't didn't always make sense. Uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting was it recommends that the player come up with what happens when you fail. That it, it, it kind of recommended that this be a little bit more collaborative and that you have kind of an idea of what's going to go wrong if, if you fail. The fortune path, it mentions um, how if you get a group of sorcerers together, even just two or three, and uh, do a group ritual for fortune, you, you can make it this strong. And I thought it was just way too strong. I think if you get three or four sorcerers together and do a, a fortune a ritual, you can run the world of darkness. <laughs> so I would, I would tone that one down. Um, mana manipulation is a path. And it talks about, uh, you know, pulling around ley lines, messing with nodes and all this. But then chapter three makes it clear that sorcerers cannot sense quintessence that they they're like a sleeper when they're next to quintessence they don't know that it's there they can only detect it if it's aligned with their style of magic and it's a really really potent concentration in a physical form and so when it comes to mana manipulation how do you apply that how do you let a player work with that um, a storyteller is going to have to figure that one out as terry said with a lot of these i got to take a real careful look at this before i run it in a game uh, Oneromancy, uh, I thought was really cool. I thought there's a lot of possibilities there, but darn it, authors, you, you, you did it to me again. I got all excited in chapter two. You're talking about the dream realms and the dream lords. I'm like, oh, this is going to be cool. And then I got to Oneromancy and it's just like, okay, people have dreams. You can do stuff with those dreams and we're done. It's like, okay, I can't argue with this, but, and when it came to Shadowcast, that's one of those things where I, I, I even hearing the name, it's like, oh, that sounds really cool. And I start reading it and I'm like, yeah, this sounds pretty awesome. Then I get to the end of it, it's like, eh, weak sauce. It's basically, you can hide yourself really well and you can scare the pants off of other people. Okay, if you get to level six, which few sorcerers ever do, and I doubt few player characters ever get that far, you can make the darkness form physical appendages that like grab people and hold them down, which again would certainly scare the pants off people. But as a storyteller, I would let a player work with it in terms of instead of making the shadows frightening to your opponents, I would make the shadows slow them down or sticky somehow. So it's like it restricts their movement rather than terrifying them. I think that could be done without overpowering it. A lot of interesting stuff here, but honestly, I would need to play test it before I, I run with it in a game. And you got weird things like the Path of Hellfire is improved because each success gives you two damage dice, and but it says the basic form of the power is to shoot a gout of flame, but this is an aggravated damage, which makes it different than every other flame in the world of darkness. Yeah, it's fire, but it's not fire. Well, it looks yeah. like fire. Yeah, but it isn't. Chapter five is Psychic Phenomena. We have mentioned before that there were uh, mythic noumena, which is analogous to mystic magic. It is something where under great duress, you can bypass the need to have a focus if you're willing to raise the difficulty to it. Technomantic 
works. On the other hand, we'll never be able to bypass it, but it has other benefits to it. But the idea behind Psychic Numina is everything is coming from within your very well-honed mind. Uh, it has an aside that says, these powers are pretty cool, but it's nothing like Trinity. So if you want Trinity, go play Trinity. And I'm like, okay, that's that's useful. And Can't argue with that. Yeah, I, I kind of like that as a side of like, oh yeah, Trinity did come out around now. <laughs> and we get 21, 21. We get 21 psychic paths. These are a bit more straightforward. There is no idea of a, a ritual to it. And I thought some of these were going to be cooler. Like one of the powers you have is astral projection, which is really just a lame version of like clairsentience or clairaudience. And maybe you have the ability to talk to someone. Like I really thought it was going to allow you to visit like the penumbra or the high umber or something like that. And I get that they want to keep those things separate. And especially after the, the avatar storm that that's kind of a no can do. Some of these just seemed wildly different, like the cyberopathy power where you can just kind of decrypt and pull information off of a network is just going to be absolutely nuts in any standard espionage sabotage kind of game where uh, just the ability to like, channel and gain two personalities and gain an ability dot for them is is kind of cool but there 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 seemed no consistency uh, across them often there are individual requirements for instance uh, within ectoplasmic generation, you have the ability to create a tulpa, which requires expending successes on an extended roll to generate uh, points to create kind of this ectoplasmic entity to do stuff for you. I thought it was neat. It was a lot. And in Mage, we generally don't have long lists of gifts or long lists of disciplines and so on. This was like physically draining for me. I did like the art in this section. I thought they did a pretty good job of pairing together the art for a given psychic power. Page 104 has a lady that looks like she's waking up from a refreshing nap while everyone is like physically falling apart. And the entry there is psychic vampirism. And you're like, okay. I know exactly what's going on in this picture. The word psychic is used a lot. It was used so many times that the word psychic stopped meaning anything to me. It's like when someone says your name a whole bunch of times in a row, semantic satiation really kicked in. I generally liked it. I mean, it is a long list of powers and some of them have some suspicious overlap, but uh, I generally liked it. I, I felt like it was more or less well done. Um, I, I guess I, I had a bit of a misunderstanding after my initial read of this book on uh, do psychics spend willpower when they use their psychic powers or not. I kind of got the feeling they don't, but I'm a little iffy on that. When it comes to the psychic organizations, they're listed at the end. There's only three and they're given brief descriptions. And it says because psychics do not really need study materials and they don't really need teachers or mentors nearly as much as, as uh, mages and sorcerers do, uh, they don't tend to form together in groups. And so that's why there's not a lot of groups here. And I thought, well, okay, that makes sense. But then on the other hand, a person who discovers they have psychic powers, they're going to have a real strong feeling of strangeness. And I think they're going to go looking for other people like them. And when they find them, there's going to be such a strong feeling of kinship that they're going to hang out together. And so I might argue that we could see more psychic groups. And I, I would certainly enjoy having that, that setting material. 
Uh, but we only get three here. Uh, we have the Friends of Foster, a sort of underground railroad that looks for people with psychic talents living in difficult situations, started by a stage magician who used to debunk fake psychics. When he found a young boy with real psychic abilities who was living in an abusive home, he adopted the boy and set off looking for other psychics who needed help. Next up, Insight Investments. An investor with precognitive abilities met a clairvoyant, and the two launched a successful investment company. Very successful. They have found four more psychics and are careful to lose enough money to avoid suspicion. And last off, the villain group, the March Institute, a shadowy organization that poses as a conservative think tank to advise Congress and the media. A group of older psychics called the Cabal, no confusion there, employ psychics to research cancer and carry out assorted other tasks for them. Agents are paid high and know better than to change jobs. So that is our three psychic organizations. I really like the call out to James Randi and the Friends of Foster, that you have uh, Randy the Fabulous Foster, who was the founder of it and the quarter million dollar check for finding a real psychic. And in the wake of uh, James Randi recent passing, I'm like, oh, you live on in the world of darkness. Chapter six is entitled Storytelling and is a chapter on storytelling. Here it gives some recommendations on what to do with sorcerers. And uh, it, it talks about what some of the unique moods and themes of sorcery could be. Uh, one is the idea of, of mystery, that you want to avoid unrelenting horror, that some of the key themes that you can do is dangerous knowledge, the idea of self-discovery, the protection of the innocent, the danger and value of religion I thought was interesting because uh, one of the recurring things is you have a bunch of people who are doing the same thing at the same time for the same purpose who have an intense sense of community to them, which is something that we don't often get in the world of darkness. We don't often get large groups of people that are kind of on the same page doing the same thing. And I thought it was interesting where you could show the uh, the, the front side and the back side of that coin. And then it mentions the, <laughs> the age-old chronicle theme of revenge and curiosity. All in all, this chapter kind of left me a little bit flat. It gave some ideas on character types. We don't get any character sheets in this book, like we don't get any sample characters, which was kind of disappointing because at the end of second edition, they had made the innovation of how to fit everything onto one page by having a tiny version of the character sheet on it. And I was like, oh man, maybe we'll get a bunch of those. And we don't. Uh, we get some archetypes, the protector of the innocent, the self-made sorcerer, the, the helpful waiter. They were fine. I don't think they were particularly interesting and didn't really show things. I have mixed feelings about the, the magical bartender as like a trope where it's like, ah, oh, yeah, I have three dots in fortune. I just wait to hear people sob stories. I'm like, you have the ability to curse family lines. Should you really be a bartender? It's kind of like in D&D &D that every shop owner is a 20th level wizard and every bar is owned by a 20th level fighter or thief or something like that. It's like, really? This is how you're going to spend your golden years? Okay. It talks about how uh, sorcerers tend to be less powerful than most of the other night folk and that you need ways of dealing with that. It asks a bunch of questions on how to have things interface with other things, like it talks about magnifying sphere magic with sorcerous activities or vice versa. And they all just seemed contrived. Again, this is a book that, as Adam said, I feel like I would need some playtesting to dial everything in if, if I were going to use it. it. talks about the the pluses and minuses of giving wraiths or night folk access to sorcery. And, and this was an argument that always kind of like fell flat for me because it starts with the premise that sorcery is less powerful than everything else in the world of darkness. I don't know how you're going to make a character like OP by giving it access to some additional less powerful thing. Like, if I have an additional seven 
XP to throw at something like the, the, the benefit I will get by advancing one of my disciplines or buying a new gift is likely going to be higher than getting my first dot in a sorceress path. I'm not too worried there. And then it gives some ideas on toning up and toning down the power level, which I thought was kind of useful, but it's, again, it's one of those things where I'd really have to test it before I came to any conclusions. And then we get this long, like, two-page section where it gives a sample argument between a storyteller and a player about creating a new path. And then the book just kind of ends. This was kind of a weird chapter for me. I did appreciate that it gave you some reminders about the importance of setting stakes and reminding that some supernaturals are more powerful than others and that in a sorcerer game, you're probably at the lower end of the power spectrum, but there's probably more of you and it gave you options for balancing it out. But this chapter kind of let me flat. Maybe I was just used to having uh, character templates or having objects of power or magical items or something like that and not having that kind of left me with that that feeling like when you have a cookie that has like an artificial sweetener in it and it like kind of leaves a weird taste on your tongue that was kind of my feeling regarding this chapter it was nice to see um, a more detailed discussion of, of crossover options and crossover rule options. Yeah, the, the templates for, I guess you could say, NPCs for sorcerers in the world of darkness, I guess was kind of interesting. But yeah, after reading through that section, I, I was also scratching my head thinking, I, I don't know how much fun these would really be to use in my chronicle and, and how much does this stretch believability. I wanted more story ideas or, or story hooks or, or things of that nature. I, I thought it would have been really fun to have more of that, get, get my mind, pull it into the setting with some interesting possibilities. And then towards the end, they had a long example of two people creating a new path for Sorcerer. I thought it was unnecessary. It was boring to read. And I don't, if you cut that out, I don't think you're missing much. I think that space could have been used more constructively. And yeah, like Terry said, there's there's no character sheet. It's like, yeah, it really helped me to have a character sheet. I mean, I know I can take a mage character sheet and cross out a few things and write a few notes and make it work. And I, and I can do that, but it sure would be nice to have a, a sorcerer character sheet for, for this. And I'm not going to go back to World of Darkness Sorcerer and use that character sheet because the, the systems are rather different now. I, I wouldn't recommend that. And with that, the book overall? Made my head turn. (laughs) Overall, it's fascinating possibilities, but some assembly required. It's focused more on rules than on setting. I I like to have a lot of fun setting ideas and and descriptions of, you know, groups in the the world. I was a bit disappointed by that. But just as a mage fan, I look at how they took the rules for sorcery paths and updated them for the revised edition rule set. And they also did a little bit of uh, shifting and, and refactoring. And that makes it a book that I want to have on my shelf. That makes it a book that I am probably going to use if I'm ever working with revised edition. And it's not that hard to use this with Mage 20. I would probably reach for this before I would reach for World of Darkness Sorcerer if I'm running Mage 20, if I want help with the actual game rules for the Numina. This would be the book I would reach for first. And so, yeah, I would recommend it to mage fans. I think you're getting something that is definitely worth having on your shelf. But yeah, there were some parts of this book that, I I don't know. uh, I mean, just to get into a discussion of some things, this book had a job to do. And that was, it must blur the line between sorcerers and mages. That is a requirement because uh, in revised edition, the world of mages is rather different now. Originally, the sorcerers were quite separate from the mages, and in power level, in you know, in, in the setting, in how they worked uh, with everything, 
And so now they're they're working side by side. There is this understanding that the characters in the world of darkness have that uh, we can't tell the difference between mages and sorcerers. And so this book's got to prove it. I believe it did. And in terms of rules and game systems, yeah, it did. It, it put in a lot of things to kind of confuse it. It's like, well, they sort of, you know, some of them sort of have avatars and some of them sort of have familiars and, and they sort of work with, well, not really quintessence, but kind of quintessence in a sense, if you squint hard enough. And so, yeah, it, it did blur that line. It did do its job as a storyteller, whether or not you want to make this combination of the two different sorts of, of player characters that, that's up to you but revised edition does encourage it path magic is stronger just as sphere magic is toned down in the revised edition core book it's it's harder paradox bites harder in this one path magic is stronger you can use it to counter sphere magic more efficiently conveyance being something that an npc would use for you know a, a comical side story now it's more something that a player character would use to get somewhere or stop someone from getting to him. So yeah, Path Magic is stronger here. One thing that still sticks out for me as, as just a general purpose mage fan is if if we're going to combine the sorcerers and the mages together, I still see how they're going to see a difference between each other. And that is when it comes time to, to studying and, and teaching each other. I think that if they can't tell the difference, you're going to have um, a student-mentor relationship where one is um, doing sphere magic, the other's doing path magic. And they find out I, this, this just doesn't work. I mean, the teacher's going to say, well, this student's a dud. Get him out of here. And, and then another teacher says, no, you're just teaching him wrong. It's like and after, you know, a few centuries, people are going to start saying, you know what? I think there's two kinds of magic or something like this. Something's going on here. Or at least there's two kinds of mages. I got a funny feeling just as, as a, a reader, as a customer, because in chapters one and two, we get two examples of characters in the world of darkness who can really tell the difference between sorcerers and mages and they say in a lot of detail how they can do it and these two npcs are, are from very different backgrounds and then we get this sidebar that says oh by the way mages and sorcerers can't tell the difference between each other it's like well okay i get that revised is making that argument and that's that's valid for revised edition but you just gave me two long detailed examples of how they can tell the difference between each other. So that made me feel, it's kind of a head scratcher. This book is a toolbox and I like that as long as we don't go too far with it. For me, the ultimate toolbox games are GURPS and Hero System, which is a superhero role-playing game. Those are such big toolboxes that when you start reading the book, it's like you fall into it and you get lost and you end up bumping up against hammers and screwdrivers. And before I go too far with this analogy, I just want to say that a toolbox is helpful to me when it gives me the baseline. It's like, okay, I can fiddle the knobs, I can vary away from the standard, but you need to give me a good idea of what the standard is. Otherwise, I feel like I'm wandering around in the fog and it's like, well, it, what, so what if I you know, adjust this knob or that knob? What am I getting away from? I need to know that. And so when we get to the character creation section and it says, um, hey, there's backgrounds like uh, Arcane and, and Library and Mentor and maybe some others, and it's like, um, storytellers have to decide if sorcerers get this or not. It's like, well, okay, I appreciate that storytellers can, can make their own call, but what is the baseline? What do you expect? Is the default that sorcerers can have arcane also or that they can't? Because you know, for me, that, that makes a difference. So if you do a very good job of establishing the baseline, then give me all, you know, all the toolbox you want because I know what I am getting away from. True faith is gone here. 
And uh, that, that was interesting for me. Uh, true faith is one kind of noumena. And in uh, first and second edition mage, you could buy dots in it and you could be weaker or stronger in your true faith. And you can use that to uh, you know, chase away uh, certain kinds of, of creatures, uh, you know, demons or demon-associated nefandi, etc., certain kinds of unbrewed. They took that out of revised edition, which I'm not going to complain about because I, I got to admit it, it does kind of fit with the revised era vibe more. Uh, they state in this book that, no, it's still a noumena, it's a merit now. It's like, well, okay, I, I wouldn't qualify that as a noumena. That is a seven-point merit, but I really like the fact that they threw in uh, psychic abilities, making this the noumena source book for revised edition. With second edition, you had to buy Project Twilight to get your expanded psychic abilities, then you had to buy World of Darkness Sorcerer for your path magic, and so you had to buy more books and keep them straight as a storyteller. Here, one-stop shop. This is the Numina source book for Revised Edition. So kudos to the authors for that and kudos to the developer for keeping that in mind. When I read more and more about Revised Edition, you know, increasingly I'm arriving at the opinion that Revised Edition is, is a very, very different look at Mage. It, it makes an, a number of setting and rule changes to you know, distinguish itself from the two editions that came before. And I'm, I'm glad that this different option is available for the, for the fans who like that. But uh, one thing here that, that really changes is in the first two editions of Mage, and in, in all of the World of Darkness leading up to, I'd say, roughly 1998, what we have the supernatural tier, which is vampires and werewolves and mages, wraiths, changelings, etc. And then you have this mortal tier. This is regular people who learn some noumena, they get some good equipment, and they decide to take on the night. And they are weaker, and that is done intentionally. The things that go bump in the night are supposed to be powerful because if they're powerful that makes them scary if they're not powerful we're not afraid of them and who cares what goes bump in the night and so there was that that differentiation that understanding of i'm playing at the mortal tier or i'm playing at the supernatural tier and when you say that sorcerers are now on an equal footing with mages then you blur a lot more than just mages like the whole world of darkness is taking a different approach now and i think that's fine i'm not I don't think that's a bad thing, but it's it's a really big change. And so as a storyteller, I need to approach this and say, okay, the whole world of darkness is different now. The mortal tier isn't there anymore. Uh, humans can become very close to the supernatural tier if they just take the right noumena and the right equipment. So it's a readjustment for me as a storyteller, but that's not a bad thing. I just want mage fans to have a good understanding of the options on the table before they go choosing options. Yeah, it felt like they were trying to make this the sorcerer to be the equivalent of kinfolk or the kinane or ghouls, where there's that thing but between the mortal and the supernatural level, and it's trying to to narrow that gap. And, and sometimes it makes sense, and sometimes it doesn't, because in the mortal tier, uh, the whole idea is you have a theme of sacrifice, that your group can win, but you're probably not all making it out alive um, and that you have a special role uh, in the same way that uh, the kinfolk basically allow Garo society to function and as you mentioned it blurs that and it doesn't always it doesn't always stick that landing in the first two editions of mage it made it clear that sphere magic was the most fundamental kind of magic in the universe it's getting closest to that powerful source of ur magic from prehistoric days and every other kind of magic is magic, but it's not that same fundamental deep level of magic. And in Revised Edition, uh, it, it changes that. Uh, it says that, you know, there are different kinds of magic and there isn't one that is the most fundamental or the most 
the closest to the original magic of prehistory. It's just, yeah, you know, there, there's different types and you can do different things with them. And so as a mage fan, I, it helps me to have that understanding of the concepts undergirding the game. It's like, okay, sphere magic was fundamental before, but it's not fundamental now. Just, yeah, help me understand that and, and I can carry forward. For me, I think one of the key takeaways was this was one of the first mage books, maybe outside of Masters of the Art, where everyone really needs to agree ahead of time what the power level is going to be and what each thing does. Uh, Within a path, I found that the rules generally made sense, where the three-dot version of Conveyance compared to the four-dot really, really made sense, or a three-dot enchantment versus a four-dot enchantment. But trying to compare the path of healing to the path of divination to the path of hellfire to the uh, path of alchemy, uh, alchemy to me still is the best at everything all the time, either that or enchantment, just because of the things it can produce out the other end. So I really feel like it's one of those things where I couldn't just hand the book to a player and say, ah, run with it and we'll see what falls out the other end. It would have to be a thing where I'm like, okay, we haven't done this before. We may need to dial some things in. So tell me what you're thinking as you go through. I don't think this would stand up to a game where the player would try and defend their actions by just pointing at the rule book and saying, but the rule book says. Where the storyteller can say, ah, but the rule book also says I get to I, I get to kind of dial it in however however I want to. I really thought they left a lot of money on the table with the fact that extraordinary citizens, the idea of technocratic sorcerers. And we don't get any chronicle ideas for it. We don't get any idea of, okay, uh, the machine is gone. What is an Iteration X sorcerer going to do now? Or what does a progenitor lab assistant make of this? Or what is the syndicate or NWO? What are their uh, lower level people doing now that we're, we're cut off from control or something like that? I really wish the storytelling section had been better. Normally I'm like, ah, storytelling sections, these are stupid. But this is one of the few cases where one has, has let me down and I kind of wish there were more going on there Uh, but otherwise as you said it's a toolbox there's a lot of really cool ideas running around in here this is a case where i wouldn't feel comfortable saying we're adding sorcerer i I would say hey we're adding this section this section this section this section and this section how do people feel about that and then and then trying to go go from there so I, i certainly agree with you you on that case yeah, I, most mage books, I, I read the book and I think, okay, I can use this or not use this in a game now. This one, it's like, I need two or three game sessions with my players to play test and, and understand this and agree on where to set the knobs before I want to run a real chronicle with this. Okay, well, I had three adventure ideas. And number one, a cabal of sorcerers belonging to Maison Liban are operating on Long Island, east of New York City. They have discovered their arts allow them to stand up to vampires and decided to take back the night. They have just begun this dangerous game. The players, whether mages or sorcerers, are sent to Long Island to intervene. The Maison Laban Cabal possesses an irreplaceable magic tome that their leader in France has plans for. This leader in France doesn't want the Cabal told the value of the book until they're ready for it. The players must keep the Cabal from getting killed by the vampires they're determined to wipe out. Can the players convince the Cabal to stop their crusade without revealing the sensitive truths they know? Are the players equipped to deal with angry vampires? Combat and social skills will both be needed to defuse this ticking time bomb. Number two, a new figure has appeared in the city and has approached a sorcerer society with whom the players have contact. This man is offering big rewards for help locating the Tome of Barbarossa's Marvelous Transformations. Soon the players hear that every other Cabal and solitary sorcerer in the city are after the same Tome. 
Fights are occurring to keep rivals from obtaining it. As it becomes clear there is a conflict mounting over the book, the players learn the same man has approached every society asking for the book. For every group the mysterious man has visited, there's a different description of what he looks like, but all agree he has a walking stick with a carving of a screaming face upon it. Who is this man, and why is he starting a shadow war in the city? Can the players keep their sorcerer allies safe during this conflict? Number three, the players are either nearby or pick up a psychic broadcast for help when a woman is attacked. After dealing with a psychic assassin, the frightened woman insists the players escort her back to her office at Insight Investments. Jacob Anderson, her boss, thanks the players profusely and offers free services. He wants them to visit again. It isn't long before another psychic attacks. When the players look into it, they find a young syndicate agent is observing the office and gently altering some of their financial data. Rather than being upset at the high profits Insight Investment is pulling in, the players discover the syndicate is delighted with this group of psychics. The technocrats have to make big adjustments to the market soon to pursue a project of their own, and Insight will be the perfect scapegoat. Do the players decide they like the psychic investors enough to protect them from the coming storm? Soon, several supernatural groups will want blood after their finances go sour. This could be a standard-length story or a springboard into a chronicle dealing with the Syndicate's Project Invictus. So those are a few story ideas of mine, and hopefully those will inspire some better ideas of your own. So what are we reading next? We are reading Tradition Book Akashic Brotherhood Revised, which is 100 pages in length, so expanded over what we got in the, the first two editions. So after Dragons of the East, we are going to take a look at the Akashic Brotherhood again, just in case we missed something. And boy, howdy, did we. And uh, as I was reading through, uh, a few bits of snappy writing, but one of the ones I really liked was early on when we get that uh, chapter one letter and the character says, I took an evening psychology class some few years ago and the lecturer said, neurosis is a private religion. Religion is a public neurosis. Sorcery is both our religion and our neurosis. It is our comfort and our obsession, our solace and our psychosis. I don't know if I agree with the sentiment, but I thought it sounded cool. And uh, that's all I got. <laughs> well, if you would like to say something, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and many other aggregators. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review on Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible for their online searches. You can follow us on Twitter, at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there and see our complete show notes that we prepare for you. Well, this episode is thanks to executive producers like Ira Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, John Magnuson, Jenna F., Andrew Edelstein, Chris Zack, Christopher Phillips, Bryce Perry, Brendan Morrill, Andrew Katz, Michael Parker, Anders, and Justin. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep producing episodes like this one and uh, bringing out more special projects we have in mind, you would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Hopefully we brought a smile to your face. And until next time, truth until paradox, baby. And with that, bye. <laughs>